Welcome to Supply Chain Next with your host, Richard Donaldson. Join us as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges professionals face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. Welcome to the next episode of Supply Chain Next. And I am uh, thrilled here to have Jason Briolt. Am I saying that? Bro. Bro. Oh, like, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> You got all the silent syllables in there. So, Brown, yeah. got it. Apologize. So, Jason Brown uh, uh, from the East Coast here today, and uh, we're going to dive into it in a second. Welcome, Jason, to the show. Hey, appreciate it. Thanks, Rich. Absolutely. And and so, just like everything else, we're going to jump right into it. And uh, like everyone here who's listening and wants to learn a little bit about Jason, tell everyone a little bit about your origin story, kind of kind of how you got to sort of where you're at. Boy, how far back do you want to go? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but, but you know, you say that kiddingly, but honestly, yeah. for a lot of people listening who might be coming just out of college or even thinking about transitioning, just yeah. transitioning in the supply chain, don't don't feel like going back as far as you want to go. Quite frankly, yeah, you know, it, it's interesting to me because I, I speak with a lot of folks on a daily basis where their roots, their I'll say their college roots, mean something, whereas there's just as many where they've completely deviated from their origin. But in my case, I think it uh, does play a part. Mm -hmm. I actually uh, went to school at the University of Rhode Island uh, and went in the early stages of them introducing a new program. It was a five-year bachelor's program in engineering and German. Of course, Germanic engineering. Why not, right? (laughs) Exactly, right? This is is 1990 uh, at the time. And their focus was you know, not only getting into the engineering, so I went for electrical engineering, got an electrical engineering degree, uh, but then speaking German as well. So all of your internships were done in Germany, an opportunity to live over there um, and all of that. So that was pretty cool and an opportunity to come out with that degree. And, you know, the focus at the time, my focus going in with a lot of guidance from my, my father, who, you know, for me, I still continue consider to be the best mentor I've ever had. Awesome. Um, was really... You know, think back to 1990, tech was not as big as it is today, right? Today, tech is inherent to the child growing up. At the time, you needed to be a little bit more intentional about it. So my goal going into school, I was a horrible engineer. Mm -hmm. I I realized that in one of my internships where I created smoke by by touching two of the wrong wires together, everybody else got really excited. I'm like, this is the height of excitement. This is not for me. (laughs) Um, But I went in with intention with the goal of being able to learn to speak like a technologist like mm-hmm. an engineer, with a goal of getting into sales and marketing at the time. Okay. And interestingly enough, I came out of school, and my focus at the time was to go after pre-internet, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, to go to the German embassy in New York City, and I ordered two books, $100 each at the time. One book was a list of all of the German-based companies that have offices here in the States. Oh. And the second book was all U.S.-based companies that have offices in Germany. And I literally sent out applications to about two to 250 of those. You know, cherry-picked some certain ones, uh, mostly larger organizations. And I didn't necessarily know what I was going to do with it, but I knew I wanted to somehow leverage the German aspect because I really enjoyed the communication and I felt like I had a lot to offer. Um, and somehow the engineering side. So I really focused on applying to technology-oriented companies and landed with Siemens. Mm-hmm. And... Although most people know Siemens as the large manufacturing business, uh, for me, it seems 
lately more often nowadays the medical side i see the logos everywhere when i you know hit the big 5-0 last week right. starting, <laughs> the more right. aches and pains you have the more semen you see right? right but all kidding aside i actually worked for a division of theirs that was just starting up literally on day one in the u.s implement uh doing sap implementations right back in the early 90s siemens was considered one of the largest customer of sap and they had you know basically created couple thousand people that knew the software so well that if they didn't leverage them somehow, they were going to lose them. So they created a consulting practice that rivaled the big six at the time. And okay. Europe actually competed strongly with them. So what happened was all of these companies, when they rolled out SAP overseas, said, listen, we want to roll this out to the States now. Who, you know, who, who in Siemens can we talk to over there? And for mm -hmm. years, they were left scratching their heads because they didn't have an establishment here. So they started mm -hmm. up an SAP consulting practice. I was the marketing grunt in the practice. And over the course of six years, um, went through a training program that was partly in marketing that actually got certified in implementing the SAP modules, uh, production huh. planning specifically. It's got a lot of great exposure mm -hmm. to the manufacturing and operations floor. And then leveraged that uh, through another mentor, a great mentor uh, that I had over there by the name of Andy Chu, to helped me get into sales. And my specialty became working with those um, sales reps overseas, Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. I'd go over there almost monthly to figure out who had projects that were about to wrap up that they wanted to take to the States so that we could negotiate a deal, an SAP consulting engagement before anyone else in the States even knew there was a deal to be had. Mm. That, so that became my specialty, sort of bridging that gap, right? Because when um, the, these projects became more complex than everyone thought. Because originally, everyone in Europe thought, hey, we're just going to rule this out. We're just going to slam this down the throats of some people in the States. Mm -hmm. When in reality, there was a cultural barrier that needed to be overcome together with business differences. So my specialty became, from a sales standpoint, really kind of bringing the two customer sites together, the U.S. and the European customer together to realize, hey, Let's talk about what your goals are and you need to trust us that we'll help you get there. Right, right. Um, so let me let me jump in for a quick second because I don't want to lose yeah. sight of this. But but I mean, first of all, <clears throat> I wasn't even thinking about the connection point. You know, I even looked at your CV and everything and I saw Siemens in there and I saw the SAP practice. So, of course, my immediate start to thinking about, you know, clearly this is the entree in the supply chain. But just to put it into context, the time frame we're talking about here is about the mid 90s, right? 90 to 96. Okay, right. So, and at this yep. point, you got two of the biggest German companies, Siemens and SAP, right? Yep. You happen to fall into Siemens and then ended up doing SAP consulting, which is fascinating to me. Yep. But let me ask the question at the time, looking back on that, given where you are now in supply chain and leadership and everything, looking back on that SAP, was SAP kind of still the early stages of moving towards supply chain? Were they more concrete in their value proposition of being, because they historically have always been sort of a financial planning, kind of sort of morphed into this thing called ERP, and right. then have sort of, in my own opinion, I don't want to say stopped innovating because I have a lot of respect for them, but it, you know, like yeah. IBM and some of these big companies, they kind of have stagnated to some extent. But I'm curious from your perspective at that time frame, though, that was kind of an interesting period because at that point, supply chain wasn't even big. SAP was just trying to get in the United States because it's got a massive foothold now, obviously, right? Yep. I mean, it's done an amazing job. But did they even realize strategically or tactically that they were sort of 
pre-positioning for this ERP supply chain stuff? Not like you and I think of it today. Right. Uh, for them, supply chain was very much uh, silos of movement of goods and making of goods. Right. right. So production planning and scheduling existed. But if you wanted to go into a more advanced planning environment, you had to custom code that in something like Havana at the time. Right. Right. And what about what about things like, and again, it's it's it's, it's a leading question because it's, it's going to bring full circle to where we are today. Even the concepts that we might now know, and, and again, to put contextually, this is all of 25 years ago. This yeah. isn't that long ago. I mean, this is yeah. really actually relatively recent. So you know, even yeah. though people today will pick up and might listen to this and everyone immediately, like let's say Google supply chain solutions, SAP is all over the place, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. But they didn't even realize they were a supply chain-esque solution. And I'm going to start to poke some holes in that in a second, but yeah. <laughs> until, until yeah. now, right? And that's all of 20 yeah. years of evolution. But things, you know, the financial planning, scheduling, yada, 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 different silos. I mean, what the chief issue most people have as SAP users today is exactly what you're describing that hasn't changed in 20 years. Siloed, yeah. disparate systems that don't talk very well, even within the SAP environment, right? Yeah. And there was a missing whole concept of digital twins and kind of trying to replicate the actual supply chain process that was never part of the origination of that platform. They're trying to kind of shoehorn it back in today. Is that, is that a fair sort of? Yeah, it's interesting because the, the truth of the matter is, to your point, that, you know, SAP was traditional ERP trying to get different parts of the organization to speak with one another. Right. Uh, I would say the industry itself hadn't gone to a place where, you know, thinking of value chains or anything like that yet at yeah. all. It was all focused on inside your four walls exclusively. Right, right. 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 So, it was still enterprise yeah. software to that to your point. It was still enterprise software. It yeah. wasn't even cloudy integration. I mean, it was just oh, no, no, right. No, yeah. Richard, when I started, this was a year coming off the mainframe. This right. is 3.0F. So <laughs> you know, several versions in, several iterations into their client server version. Yeah. So cloud wasn't even thought at the time. Right, right, right. And it, which is a still 20 years ago. I mean, it's just not yeah. that long ago, you know, and you and I are pretty damn close to the same age. That's why I was kind of picking out the mid, mid, mid nineties in there. Okay. So sorry. So let's get, let's back yeah. to you. So you got this SAP, you clearly are naturally joining talent. So somewhere yeah. in there, you started to realize that, oh my gosh, there's an opportunity here for me to start thinking about placing either current or future supply chain leadership. So one step, one step in between. Yeah. Uh, so there's one step in between, and that is in 90, no, excuse me, 2000. I'm sorry, I got my dates wrong earlier. I started with Siemens in 95, I finished in 2000. Okay, uh, so midnight, yep, yep okay. mid to late 90s. 95 to 2000, and then I, uh, in 2000, joined AMR Research. Gotcha. I actually was listening to another podcast two years with Stan Arnaud from like a oh, year yeah. and a half ago. Yeah. So very much resonated with me, I'm sure. It sounds like he joined exactly what I right before I left. Yeah. Um, so AMR research, you know, originally founded as advanced manufacturing research, right? right? Um, went there and it was really exciting because whereas, uh, you know, selling an SAP consulting engagement was like elephant hunting. AMR right. was very much, well, I'll say the high volume environment, right? It okay. would deal with 200 plus prospects to sell to. So I was selling their supply chain and manufacturing research into uh, discrete manufacturing companies. Okay. aerospace defense companies. And the last year when I left, had actually helped them start up a, uh, a government business, selling their okay. commercial research into the government. Just some okay. awesome stories there. Um, but I'm going to tell you, when it comes to your earlier question about true exposure to supply chain, that's where it really came in. 
Gotcha. Um, the people there, like I work with a tremendous amount of really smart individuals. Um, I was not on the research side. I was on the sales side, selling into supply chain professionals, selling into IT professionals. But the exposure that we got there, being in those sessions, every time a new piece of research came out, you know, the analysts were working with the salespeople for two or three hours to help us understand what it meant, mm-hmm. why, why the audience wants to hear about this, you know, get them to want to engage in it, et cetera, et cetera, which was just fascinating stuff. Right, right, right. So that's, <clears throat> so, so what was it then, because you got AMR in there, you, and again, small world, right? All these thought leaders who are yeah. in supply chain have crossed paths in some way, shape, or form. And I'm sure there's many others mixed up in there. Immediately, I think of Newt Alecky, you know, from, mm-hmm. from you know, uh, with his German roots and everything, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he's leading all the supply chain, or one of the leaders of the supply chain practice at McKinsey, uh, just yeah. co-authored a book with Radu, you know, one of your colleagues, right? Global recruiter yeah. out of Singapore. Um, yeah. that's coming out. Anyway, so what though really triggered you to make the leap into supply chain recruiting, which if I'm doing my dates right, was somewhere around sort of the 2004, five, six timeframe, which is still kind of early, honestly, like, like what, you know, people, supply chain still wasn't sexy. So what, what did you see that other people weren't seeing? So supply chain may not have been sexy, but but the needs were there. I'll tell you, there's two things that, that helped me get into supply, helped me get into the recruiting piece. Uh, one, I'm going to go back to my original mentor that I mentioned. I hope everyone's got a good mentor. Uh, my father, I grew up, uh, my father was in recruiting most oh. of my life. Okay. Uh, so from 81 on, he was in recruiting. So oh. although I never worked in this business, I grew up vicariously at the dinner table in that business my whole life, you know, in, in respect. Um, when my wife and I found out we were having our first child, mm-hmm. we decided it was time to get off the road. I love, mm. love, love working for AMR, but it was either driving an hour to Boston or um, flying to different cities, you know, sure. a couple times a week. Sure. So we looked at multiple options to get off the road, but stay in the business I knew and loved, which was selling into supply chain. Sure. Uh, tried a couple of different things, including buying a vending machine business and all. But long story made short, when we did a lot of soul searching, we figured out that uh, although I'd never worked in recruiting, knew enough about it, felt I had the best mentor out there to get into recruiting a supply chain. Mm-hmm. Now, my my specialty of supply chain was much different than what my father was in at the time. So I had a great mentor learning recruiting, mm-hmm. but I wanted to apply everything I brought from AMR and from Siemens into this world. So I came into this, I'm gonna tell you very quickly, uh, very confident that I could be, you know, I was a mid 30 something at the time, mm-hmm. that I could be everything Every recruiter to anyone that wanted a recruiter in supply chain, didn't matter what you wanted. I felt confident that I could talk the talk, I could hold Mm -hmm. the conversation and so forth. And at the time, there was three distinct areas that we had considered, right? A lot of times in recruiting, you find that when somebody comes calling, they often have tried some options on their own first. Mm -hmm. So they want results yesterday when they finally agree to come and work together. Yeah. So... At the time, the consideration was global logistics. Everything was starting to move more and more to China. Mm-hmm. Uh, global procurement, same subject, moving to China, and planning. Mm-hmm. Right. If you go back to the AMR research days, that whole demand-driven supply network and the hierarchy of supply chain metrics they put together, the mm-hmm. toughest part for any company to master, and to this day, it's still atop the list, planning. Yep. Specifically, demand planning. Yep. So for about the first year, we literally took on any global logistics, global procurement, and planning role that we could find. 
gotcha. to figure out where's the real need inside of businesses. Yes, we can be everything to everybody. Yes, we can hold every conversation. But if you're going to build a network where you become the known entity, you've got to get narrow. You've got to get narrow quickly. Yep. We learned that the hard way, right? Because I would take on the search for a global logistics person. It was a brand new search. We didn't have a network. Eight weeks later, you'd come back and someone would say, wow, Jason, you did find the perfect person. But hell, where were you the last eight weeks? We right. felt it while you were gone. Right. 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 But yeah, I would have, I wished it was this person. I just wish you found two weeks in. Gotcha. Um, so we learned the hard way through a lot of those efforts that we needed to get narrowed quickly. So mm-hmm. over that first year, we narrowed it quickly to the planning space, where I will tell you, now we've expanded quite a bit from that those early days. Mm-hmm. But the hardest goal for most of those companies to fill turned out to be the planning goals. And that were, that's where we created our specialty. Well, and that's so. I, and again, I think you're keying on a, a couple things in there. One, and I, I want to. Double click again on the original question because I think you're being a bit, uh, um, you're not giving yourself the credit that maybe in retrospect you, you deserve, which is you still saw a trend probably 15 years before other people did. Like yeah. you could have done recruiting for sales. You could have done recruiting for marketing. You could have done, I mean, recruiting is, is not yeah. new. Yeah. Focusing on supply chain was a bit different. And again, I don't know what your dad slash mentor was recruiting for, but I'm not, I'm pretty sure there wasn't supply chain recruiting in his era, right? Correct. <laughs> so, same as Yeah, but there was something about, like yeah. you might not have called it supply chain back then, which is also another interesting part of my question here, but I'm still kind of trying to tease out, like what did you see in the, in the context of operations and supply chain that were like, yeah, I'm going to go focus here because no one else is doing that. Then you uncovered that the companies wanted planning back then and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna yep. follow on that question a little bit. But again, you you made a decision to focus in on that area. Why why that versus say finance? Yeah, the the, the easy answer is it's the it's the space I knew. Okay. It was very fragmented. It, that's the, the really simple answer. It Chance was, favors it was the prepared. fragmented. Right. Right. So we have uh you know the supply chain or value chain as we know it today, everyone is speaking the same language. But at the time logistics worked in a, a silos. Sourcing worked in a silo. Uh, uh, planning worked in a silo. Great inconsistencies across organizations as to where these functions should sit. Mm-hmm. Right? You didn't have a chief supply chain officer. Rarely had a chief supply chain officer back in 2006. Right. Or, you know, God forbid that person should sit at the C-level. Forget right. about it, you know, reporting to a CEO. So I, I gravitated to it first because it's the world I knew. It's at least the language I spoke. But mm-hmm. secondly... Where there's chaos, there's problems to be solved. Mm-hmm. Where there's where there's you know where there's uncertainty, there's problems to be solved. And as a result of that, you know, the, this is a solution we could bring to them. We could help yep. bring consistency to the way people thought about this. Right. Well, I, I, again, and and you know, threw it out there, but chance favors the prepared, right? So sometimes it's just lucky being at the right place at the right yep. time. But you were ready, you know. So I yep. mean, that's kind of the point of all that. But now, so let me pivot a little bit because you've been doing this now for about 15, 16 years. You've also, and you're kind of highlighting some things that again, in me trigger a level setting for the audience, which is we're talking all of 15 years ago, the supply, like chief supply chain officers still didn't really exist. The supply chain function was buried one or two or three levels below the C-suite, generally speaking, you know, and it might've been in finance, might've been in operations, might've been God only knows where else, but you know, still kind of tucked down here, yet it still was complex. It still accounted for the most amount of spend in the company. 
that it still wasn't focused on at the time. So here, here's my question. Now, again, looking, and clearly everything, you know, fast forward to today, supply chains, everything. First of all, what was going on at the time that companies were just not seeing this Leviathan sitting there and wanting to deal with it? And then what, I mean, obviously the pandemic and things like that, but what's changed in 15 years? Like from the corporate perspective, like what, why did it take them 20 or 30 or 40 years to realize supply chain is such a big deal? You know what I mean? Like I, I'm still kicking myself in the ass going, how has this been this way for so long? I kind of have my own speculations, but I mean, you, you're right there seeing companies because you're talking to companies like they've shifted their gears. All of a sudden now, fast forward yeah. 15 years, you're recruiting for chief supply chain officers, number one, which is new. You're recruiting for supply chain talent that actually reports into the C-suite. That's new. And I bet you're also in the trend in the middle of like CEO positions are actually requesting chief supply chain or supply chain backgrounds to run companies now, a la um, uh, uh, Tim Cook over at Apple or, you know, others yeah. that we can sort of pick off, right? That are Walmart, supply chain. right? Walmart, exactly. Walmart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so again, the question really is, from your perspective, looking back on that, and it's more, more conversational, but why did it take them this long to, to figure out this was such a big yeah. deal? I think the first thing was, if you look at the roots of what we call supply chain today, yeah, right. The root, I think that I think most people would agree that the roots started with logistics, correct. And logistics historically was a blue collar function. Yep. Yeah. So, for 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 what we now know as supply chain to grow from a blue collar function, a cost, simply a cost center. Yep. Keep your costs down. Yeah. Lean manufacturing, lean out the cost, lean out the inefficiencies, all yep. of that stuff to now a white collar role that is just sitting in corporate. Never mind C suite yet. Let's just talk mm -hmm. about the fact that it moved into a corporate function. Right. That took a tremendous amount of time. Yep. Right. Um, I, I think that's that was the first challenge there. I just had a conversation with somebody this morning about, you talked about like, how do we get to where we are today? Where we are today and what's happened in the last two or three years is probably discussion for an entire podcast alone and the change that it's driven. Right. Right. But, you know, we've moved from, I'll say, very reactionary environments. Everybody's moving to China back to a cost item. So therefore, I should move my manufacturing to China. As an example, right? So it still stayed very tactical at that level. It wasn't until, I don't know, let's think of the years here. You know, you run from everyone's moving to China uh, to the, um, the Great Recession in between. That drove a lot of companies to make big changes, significant right. changes, right? Um, geez, Richard, it's probably only in the last eight or nine years at most now that we have this as a corporate function with over, you know, one overarching person. And I'm not saying it didn't exist in organizations before that, but but now that it's in the norm, now, now that all organizations are thinking this way, it's in the last eight, nine, 10 years. That's it. Yeah, correct. Yes. I mean, it's a, it's a new, it's a, but it's that, that newness is also like, again, opportunity. Yeah. But I, I, again, because it's so much in your face the last couple of years, certainly the last year and a half during and then post COVID, uh, or whatever pandemic, um, that you, you, people are forgetting that this is literally a relatively new trend, and that you're that you're articulating on right now, right? Yeah. That this whole supply chain thing is even top of mind. Is 
for as much as it's been in our face for two years, it's kind of new. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how about the, you know, one thing we're, we're not talking about here, although we started with ERP, we haven't really talked much about technology's ability to enable what supply chain wants to do. Correct. Right. Half of what we're doing, more than half of what we're doing today, and even just in the last couple of years, wasn't possible prior to this, um, or was ridiculously costly. Yep. Digital twins, it. Internet of Things. I mean, all that stuff has gotten to a point now that you can actually deploy it to, to twin your supply chain. But 10 years ago, that no way. And I'm talking even, I'm talking even, I agree with you, yes, but I, I, I'm talking even more elementary than that. Yeah. You know, so take take the, the value chain. Take take. We just did the beer game in our yeah. office a month or two ago, right? And we got to see the beer game. So everyone in the office got to see the whole thing, right? Suppliers talking to, you know, customers talking to suppliers, talking across the, the spectrum, yep. um, that whole cycle. So speaking outside your four walls or the concept of seeing two or, you know, one or two tiers deep and all that, as, as everyone moved offshore, things became more complex. Mm-hmm. And as a result, it really built, you know, back to your initial question, in my mind, that's really what built up the need for more advancement and everyone speaking together, which, which brought the supply chain together and being very elementary here. But that, to me, that's what brought the supply chain together. Yeah, yeah, elevated. Well, let, let's, let's, let's expand on that for a little bit. So now, because you've been, again, your timing was pretty much spot on. You got into and became a global recruiter for all supply chain talent. So you've seen the trends with not only the companies looking to augment, advance, and innovate their supply chains, but also the DNA of the people who are quote unquote supply chain professionals. So the two-part question here is, over the last 10 or 15 years, and you kind of are starting to touch on this, companies have shifted their prioritization towards supply chain. That's a relatively new trend in as far as requirements. So how do you see and articulate that change from when you started to where you are today, the company side, right? Because that's a, I'm imagining that's completely different from where you, I mean, like you probably struggled to knock on the door and like, hey, I can help you with your supply chain. People are like, what? And nowadays they're like, you, you probably can't, you know, answer the phone fast enough because people are looking for this. So what did, what's changed in the company's DNA and how they're approaching you from just a recruiting perspective, the company side? I'm not sure that I understand the question. When so the meaning like if these, these, these companies 10 or 15 years ago might've said, yeah. oh, I need a supply chain person. You know, they're get, I would need them to focus on demand planning because yeah. that was a big problem at the time. Yeah. But now companies are coming to you and saying, shit, I need a supply chain person that might be the CEO, but I certainly need a chief supply chain officer to run the company. And this, the DNA yeah. is not just demand planning anymore. It's, I need them to help me run my whole business, right? Yeah. Like that's how important supply. So the companies have shifted you know, how they view supply chain. And from your perspective, you have a very unique view of the companies and how they're looking at this stuff. Because it's not like, you know, when I started in supply chain, you know, at at eBay, you know, of course, who are the, who are the sexy people was the developers, of course, because that ran the company, but then sales and marketing were always kind of right there. But supply chain was like, literally, like I was lucky to even have a a, a stool in the same room as people from planning. Even though I accounted for most 40% of the expenses, right? But that shifted while I was there. And the companies began like, oh, actually, we need you here to be a part of the process and the overall conversation. So you've seen companies shift over 12 years. What is that shift? So the first thing I would say, back to your example, you represent 40% of the cost. You represent the cost though. Right, yeah, so that it's all seen as as value generation. That was the Fair. problem, and that's Fair. the problem that supply chain has had for years. Yep. Um, when I first started, 
It was a very tactical role. It was a tactical title. It was a tactical function. Mm -hmm. um, it was, you know, it was very much getting into the data, trying to figure out what made sense. Mm -hmm. However, as we joke today, you know, 10, 15 years ago, some of those folks that became what we think of today as corporate supply chain folks were almost like, forgive me to, if I offend the propeller heads, but it was almost like a propeller head, right? Yeah, right. They, right. they, they were doing their analysis. Um, but they didn't know how to present that data to somebody. Right. They right. didn't know how to use that data to make a, a business decision, right? The data story that we all talked about today. Fast forward five years past that, you know, so now we're going back seven, eight years ago, mm -hmm. companies started to shift and say, we want somebody, rather than having this technical person on one side and a business person on the other side that's going to translate what they're saying, I want that person who's doing the analysis in the room, but I need them to know how to speak sales language over here, finance language over here, keep right. the technical garbage to themselves. Right. And I don't want to keep, like everybody was threatened by the fact that, or, or thought that the, the, the supply chain person, the technical person was using a black box. They didn't understand how they were coming up with that data and therefore they completely dismissed it. Right. So which the big shift came when they started looking for folks who really had both left brain and right brain right. characteristics to offer. And right. therefore, they could not only go and do that deep analysis, but now they could go and have that conversation. So rather than sales and marketing, for example, coming into a sales and operations planning meeting mm -hmm. and saying, we're going to sell 3x what we've sold in the past, and you acting like an order taker saying, okay, now mm -hmm. you can push back and say, you know something, Mr. or Mrs. Sales VP, mm -hmm. you've never sold more than 1.2x in the past. What mm -hmm. do you know now that you didn't know back then or that, that I don't know mm -hmm. that has you believing you're going to sell more than that now? And not only more than that, but 3x that. Yep. I've got the data here to show it. Let's talk about this. Oh, you've got a promotion. Well, historically, promotions have done this, have given mm -hmm. us like a 15% you know, lift at best. Mm -hmm. So now they've got the data and they know how to talk to it. And that was a game changer right. for a lot of these organizations. And what else would also happen? Again, I go back to technology. Technology caught up to the capabilities. So now I didn't necessarily need somebody who could be a VBA programmer using Excel to get at the data. They could use a Manugistics. They could use an I2 at the time. All, you know, all these tools. Yep. They could use these tools and only had to go and look at exceptions. As long as they knew they had the right model built into mm -hmm. it, now mm -hmm. all they got to do is go look at the exception, do a little bit of number crunching there. And again, now they become more collaborative. So yep. now they're rubbing elbows with sales, marketing, finance, the executive level inside the organization collaborating, whereas in the past, it was a mystery as to what they were doing. Right, right. Well, that's so, a huge shift. I was going to say, as you were talking through that, and we've witnessed this, that's sort of how technologists kind of got thrown into the business in the last 25 years. CTOs kind of had to go through that initial cycle of just, oh my God, what are you? I don't understand you. There's a black box there to, oh my God, this is strategic. Yeah. We got to get you more involved. You got to be part of the business decisioning process, get anything in business or whatever. Like I just, I'm hearing that story, you know, that we just played yeah. out CTO positions, but now we're talking about chief supply chain officers. So in one sense, if I'm going to kind of simplify, companies or enterprises at the time recognize like, oh my God, there's this black box of supply chain. Right. We actually now need someone not only just to run and trust, trust that you know, they, they can run the black box. They actually have to articulate what that black box is because it's too big for us yep. to avoid anymore. So that's sort of like shift one. But then somewhere also in the last, like you said, five, six years, 
we added more to that chief supply chain officer function, which is now not only do you have to understand supply chain and be someone who can market and sell the ideas of supply chain, but you also have to become a technologist because now technology has caught up to you and it is a requirement for you to figure out how to apply technology to this once black box that we know nothing about. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and so how does that change a little bit as well too, more recently? So more recently, it's oh, well, a couple of things have come up. Number one is historically, well, let's go back. Again, organizations have leaned out their supply chains now. You're still using all the same skills that we just talked about. They've yeah. got them down, you know, bare bones. They've got costs down. They're having all these strategic discussions. COVID hits. And now they realize they've leaned it out too much. This is right. all over the news. This is no secret to anyone who's listening right. to your podcast, right? right. Um, so now the challenge becomes, how do you become more agile? Right. Right. How do you um, become better at, at, at mitigating your risk? How do you become better at thinking about your risk? Um, the technology piece is there. The, 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 the challenge with the technology piece right now is the same fight uh, that that supply chain, and frankly, it goes with sales and marketing, I'm sure, or any other function in the organization, the, you know, the best of breed versus the, the enterprise tool and which yeah. one's better for your business. Yeah. So the ability to, to be savvy in that respect, that hasn't changed whatsoever mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. in, in all that. The analytics piece, critical. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, again, I'm going to differentiate technologists from analytics because the analytics mm -hmm. oh, yeah. has become the key, yep. right? Yep creating visualization for the business, helping them understand where, where you can take the business, understanding, helping them understand how you can add value to the business, right? Um, ha have you seen, uh, the gentleman's name escapes me, forgive me, uh, but have you seen, for example, like what American Eagle is doing with their supply chain, where they're literally saying, hey, you know, we're going to start providing services. If we're sending a truck somewhere that's half full, or we've got right. a truck coming back empty, why don't we partner with other small to mid-sized retailers? We can't compete with Walmart. We can't compete with Amazon. Mm -hmm. But why don't we go partner with some of these other smaller, I don't know if they're competitive or non-competitive businesses, but they're saying, let's leverage each other's economies of scale. And now literally bought some technology and digital solutions right. that they're offering to these other businesses to actually have supply chain be a complete value add hmm. to the organization. It's actually fascinating. Check, check it out afterwards. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think what's changed now with the supply chain is now the supply chain is having to go back and revisit how do I add more value? How do I help you sell more? Not just, mm -hmm. you know, not just saying, hey, ship this here on time, but mm -hmm. how can I make it more attractive to Walmart to want to give me six or 12 more inches of space on the shelf? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's because of supply chain can enable something, not because sales has got a savvy pitch right. to the organization. Right. Now, I'm going to come back to that one because you, you, yep. you've opened the door for me in another area that I would definitely want to explore a little bit, which is, the, again, expanding role of what supply chain is covering because yep. there's a key other part, which is circularity, which is top of mind right now. I would yep. even contend it's a strategic initiative, not a nice to have environmental kind of initiative, but I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that one in a second. So, but here we are now, you kind of come through this. You're kind of looking at both the company the co and the companies. I think we've seen it, right? They they know they need supply chain leadership. They're looking for it now. They've prioritized. They they know it's a key differentiator into the future. 
right? And, and now even through the transparency of technology, innovation and introduction, people are beginning to understand like, oh my God, the supply chain is massive. Like, like you know, that infographic I love to show uh, from the National Geographic, uh, I'm sure I showed it to you, but it shows the whole world kind of aggregate supply chain in one big view. And then you see your hundred gigatons of stuff moving through the planet. That's where you get to your 8% circular number. You know, like just even that, having that on display, it's no longer like you put it a black box abstract. It's real. It's this yeah. is what it is. This is how I contribute. This is how the hundred trillion dollar global economy functions, right? Yeah. Which is also validating every investor, innovator, supply chain disruptor right now. Going, I'm at the right place at the right time doing you know supply chain stuff because everyone is now recognizing, holy shit, this is the biggest thing since the yeah. internet, kind of thing, yeah. right? So where I'm looking now is. Now thinking in that context, in your role, how are you looking at the future DNA of supply chain leadership? It because you know doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Well, clearly that doesn't work all that well. Yeah. Um, so how do you view then kind of the new evolved supply chain leader or leaders? You know, what does that look like going forward? Yeah. So there's a couple of things. The first is. The, uh, you mentioned the circularity. I'll, I'll even say the broader ESG initiatives altogether, sure. yep. right? The biggest challenge with this right now, I actually spoke with a client about this this morning, is there mm -hmm. is zero consistency across organizations right now as to where this sits. So the leaders of the future are going to have to literally Correct. sit there and say, I want to take ownership of this. Because there's a lot of leaders who, I think yep. there's a lot more press release about this right now. And there's good stuff happening for sure. Yep. But there's also a lot, I think too many companies are focusing more on the press release than, than doing good. Yep. No, right? absolutely. Um, the, the leaders of the future, though, um, I would say it's, it's recognizing that challenge. It's rec going back to it. It's recognizing the value that it brings back, though. This isn't all philanthropy, yeah. right? If you're running out of rare earth materials, I heard one of your other podcasts I listened to said there's more uh, gold coming out of the equipment. You know, the, I think it was the Dell equipment yep. than is found in some some region of the world, right? Totally. Yep. Um, this, this is not philanthropy, right. but its supply chain has the opportunity and the supply chain leadership has the opportunity to go back and say, I can add incremental value here mm -hmm. by, by doing this. Mm -hmm. And you get a good press release out of it. The, mm -hmm. I think the leaders of the future need to realize, and you'll get a good press release, it's got to be the secondary, not not the primary that it is today. Yep. That's that's the big deal there. Yep, yep. And I um, think, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, that's fine. Yeah, you know, I was going to say, because you touch on something that, that we hear a lot, I love to hear that you're also thinking the same thing, which is, you know, these are not mutually exclusive concepts, but I can lead as a capitalist. It yep. just so happens what I'm doing through circularity, which is actually improving margin, reducing risk. And oh, by the way, it happens yep. to be really good for the environment, right? Yep. So it's a business first decision, right? Yeah. Instead of a, hey, let's go hug a tree kind of thing, which there's nothing wrong with that, but it, right. <laughs> it doesn't quite have right. value to the margin. The, the, the board's going to be like, there's no shareholder appreciation here. Um, so what do yep. you do it? So then let me, uh, but, but that also within this then is the, uh, you know, these leaders, have to also, I don't want to say think different. They they have to they have to be flexible in their thinking because there's so much change going on. You know, one of the things that I, I'm curious about from perspective again the the facile nature of the right and left brain executive that you seek out, right? Like they they have to come unencumbered, right? Because 
for me, and I'm kind of leading the question, leading the witness here a little bit, but you know, every time okay. I hear someone say, this is the way I do stuff, or it's been done this way, like my spidey senses go off in the Richter scale. I'm like, that's, right. that's my signal for opportunity. Yeah. So the leaders you're looking for have to be coming in going, I, I, I'm not going to do it the way we've been doing it for 20 years, right? I'm going to try to use the best of what I can, but I'm going to be open to shifting. I'm going to be open to using new technologies. I'm going to be open to yeah. shifting, looking at my supply chain. Instead of focusing on procurement, I'm actually going to focus on disposition and circularity on the back end. I'm going to focus yep. on things like asset management where no one really paid attention to that at all, but I understand that's how I'm going to get down to my digital twinning of everything. So my point here, my question really is, again, how, how do these people, I mean, do you look within the supply chain world? Do you look for disruptors to come in? Like, how do you, how do you even recruit for that? Like, like how do you look for that? I would say, you know, the, the, you and I talked about this in, in the pre-show, right? Yeah. And we talked about some of the innovators coming from other industries. Right. We talked about, you know, the Elon Musks who came from, you know, from PayPal to SpaceX and Tesla. Totally. Um, I was thinking earlier today, you know, you think of like the Lou Gerstner back in IBM days yeah. who came from RJR Reynolds, American Express to running IBM. Right. 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 How does that happen today? Right. Um, I think at the executive levels, there's two things here. I think number one, you need those visionary, you need those, I'll say a, a visionary personality mm -hmm. with a curiosity, um, but also with a backing of an executive team that's going to give you the, the, the leeway, the bandwidth to get to where the organization needs to be. There's absolutely, I'll say, um, a healthy component of bringing someone in who doesn't come in with a preconceived notion, with a predetermined answer. Right. And is forced to ask the question uh, as to, you know, why do we do it this way? Why, you know, educate me on why that's the right way. Mm -hmm. um, what are the other three ways you've considered? What were the results? Right. Not every organization, not every, this comes back to, we're, we're talking, you and I are talking about supply chain executives here, but this is inherent on the board of directors and a CEO right. to say, you've right. got the time to go figure this out, which most, many public organizations don't mm -hmm. always have the luxury of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. Right. Um, so, so that's the biggest challenge. But the innovators, uh, the other challenge is we've talked about innovation earlier, and that is it goes without saying the smaller the business, it is easier it's going to be to innovate. Okay. Right. Um, so many organizations going through, let's say, mergers and acquisitions, uh, those are great. Those help build up revenues and everything. Uh, but Instances like that, the chief supply chain officer or the supply chain team is left with cleaning up the mess, mm -hmm. right? How many instances have you seen, I'm sure, where, you know, we're going to go put in a new system to make this all one company and right. make it worse. And yeah. now you got to bring in a supply chain executive who's all about cleaning up somebody else's mess and not having the ability to innovate. Right. Uh, this is a rare breed you're talking about, Richard. It's yeah. awesome when you, when you have the opportunity to work with them. Um, but I think it'd be unfair to represent that every Fortune 500 company has an innovator well, uh, as a supply chain executive. It's not the case, but when you meet them, it's amazing. Yeah, well, I was going to say, uh, but you're also saying like, even on the innovation side, I don't care if you're in hardcore Silicon Valley these days, even that innovation yeah. is just difficult. You know, innovators are sort of, you know, rare breeds anyways. They can, I, you know, it's almost yeah. like we've, you know, in a way, if the innovation is, is there, it's like a skill set that can be applied to almost any industry. And Elon yeah. Musk is sort of my example in that sense. Like he's an innovator. If yeah. you threw him, if you threw him at at, at, at at education, he would innovate education. If you threw him at yeah. 
space. He'll innovate. You know what I mean? He's just, he's just not yep. going to be settling for the status quo. And maybe that's because I I've right. struggled even trying to articulate like, what the hell does it mean to be an innovator? But there's something about that thinking that we haven't truly kind of psychologically figured out yeah. that, that, that is a characteristic that you could, you know, take someone and kind of throw them at these problems. It's like, it's like a, I don't yeah. want to call it like a pinch hitter, but kind of in a way, you know, it's a bad yeah. analogy, but yeah. Um, so, okay. So, so let me bring back that again, kind of, you know, starting to look, we are looking forward a little bit, but how does that play? How do you see this playing out, you know, over say, you know, this decade here of supply chain, we're in the middle of it. You're kind of recruiting these new people. They're changing things. Even the idea of collaboration, right? Like. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked a little bit about enterprises are having to kind of adjust and, and change quite a bit over the last yep. 20 years, right? They're getting they're getting hammered from all sides. And one of the other ones here is not only do I need you philosophical new people coming in to, you know, think a little bit differently, you know, have these innovation characteristics, you know, be technologists at the part-time, but also the idea of collaboration, right? And 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 this is one actually part of the conversation we're having here is trying to collaborate with all these different conversations with people, but that at the enterprise level is not typically their strong suit, you uh-huh. know, um, and companies that can collaborate better than other companies, i.e. maybe Google as an example, right. Or some of these tech companies that are sort of used to collaboration or, you know, open source software won, closed source software didn't win. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So how does that then apply to this future look at, you know, again, another feature or function of this, this, this executive or executives in the role of collaboration. In my mind, it's all about being able to break down barriers. Right. Uh, you, 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 you come from a heavy t- high tech background yep. where this is all, all from, from what I hear you saying is a bit more inherent in yeah. the culture, the DNA of a high tech professional. Yeah. Um, we do, for example, a tremendous amount of recruiting in the consumer goods industry, gotcha. right? So any company selling into a, a Walmart, uh, a Publix, a Best Buy, you know, those, we do a lot of work with those folks. Those retailers up until a couple of years ago, you know, did not want to share any information whatsoever. So the ability to go in and break down a barrier and help them understand where there's value on both sides to us communicating better. You're mad that you've got a stock out. I'm mad that I got to expedite something to fill that stock out. Either way, you lost a sale right? Um, help us do this better together. And therefore, gotcha. let's collaborate. So there's a huge need. And now in the retail industry, it's gotten a lot, retail CPG supply chain, it's gotten yep. a lot better yep. at a cost, right? Yeah. Retail right. is happy to say, I'll share that information with you, but it's going to cost you. Sure, of course, of course, of course, of course. Um, so I, I, the collaboration piece is huge. One mm-hmm. thing we haven't talked about here, and if you don't mind, I'm going to yep. skip to this really quickly. And um, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily innovation to the extent that you're thinking about, but mm-hmm. COVID has forced companies to innovate. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, and so I think there's going to be a, an awesome white paper done, a business case, a Harvard Business Review done in, in a year or two to talk about what did everybody learn from this, right? It's forced companies to rethink how their supply chains were set up to support their customer base. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things that would have typically taken five and 10 years to complete. Are ha- you know we're happening in, in a matter of months, if not a year. Right. Um, uh, if I can give you just a really quick example, I've got yeah. one client who's in the food industry, fresh food. Okay. Um, you know, traditionally sold through retail and wholesale channels. This is perishable food that you know it's got a shelf life of a week at the grocery store. Okay. 
they they went ahead and did a, they started a direct to consumer business. Mm-hmm. No fanfare whatsoever. They just mm-hmm. flipped the switch one day in December of 2019, mm-hmm. and they said, you know, we're going to work out the kinks, so it's going to be quiet. It's only going to be on our website, no advertising, no nothing. They were averaging 30 orders a day. Wow. COVID hit. COVID hits. Overnight, they went to a thousand orders a day. Ugh. Inside, uh, you know, with an ex- their expectation was at a half billion dollars in five years. They expected because of COVID, I don't, never went back and checked, but they were going to hit about 350, 350 million inside the first 12 months. Oh my God. So there's an organization that said, we're going to sit here and tap dance to this. We're going to mm-hmm. figure out if it doesn't work, nobody's going to know about it. We've been okay to overnight saying, we need to figure out how to make this a real, you know, to make this a business because it's great that we're getting all of this, these orders, mm-hmm. but to, 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 to fulfill them uh, efficiently, to fulfill them at a profit, that's not a given. Right. right. So that's one small example of many organizations that are going to have been forced to innovate. People who are going to perhaps weren't ready for that role as chief innovator who were thrown into that position and had to adapt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, and, and, and again, I think it's a great example uh, and a great kind of lead into kind of where things are going over the next few, kind of your mega trends, right? We're kind of Yep. Winding and, and, and as I always knew, I'm looking at the clock now because it's like we're coming up in an hour and it's like these things fly by. And it's like, I, I wish I had another hour here to go into it. So we'll, we'll, we'll do it again. But, you know, kind of doing the forward look a little bit here. How do you see these mm-hmm. mega trends playing out throughout this decade? Right. How do you see whether it's, you know, the, 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 the collaborative nature of companies, you know, kind of change? I mean, I feel like there's just so much change that's happening and it's really at such a fundamental level at the supply chain level now that, yep. that I'm, I'm not, even, you know, the, the future landscape is going to be very different in 2030 than it is today. Right. Yep. How do you see, what do you see in your kind of crystal ball a little bit playing out as supply chain and kind of leading some of that change a little bit right now and taking the kind of forefront? Yeah, I think, I think a couple of things are going to happen. Number one, I think it's going to happen sooner than that, honestly. Right. Right. Um, one thing we one thing we haven't talked about, and don't let me steer from your question, yeah, but no. one thing we haven't talked about is is the challenge in finding talent right now. Right. Right. right? I haven't seen, I don't know what the actual number turned out to be, but 10 years ago, MIT put out some information that referenced the fact that by the time the last of the baby boomers retired, mm-hmm. there's going to be nearly 80 million retiring, with somewhere between 40 and 60 million people entering the workforce. Oh. Okay. So the challenge that presents, and the reason I share that with you, the challenge it presents is the fact that historically, the the baby boomers are retiring in such large large numbers, and organizations are coming back and saying they're losing that whole middle management layer. Right. There's not people ready to come up. They're they're, in the time frame companies would prefer. They're not having the time to groom the individuals for those leadership roles. So they're being thrown into it, which is where I come. I, I, I feel like you want something more out of my answer, but I come, it's why I keep going back to the technology and the analytics is the most important piece for these folks right now. Aside from the other things we've talked about, the collaboration is key, but this is one of those that, that to, to, to enter the party, mm-hmm. you need the technology and the analytics right now because short of some of the other skills that executives have had in the past, yep. this is the differentiator. The yeah. other thing that's key, though, and I'm going to go back to your collaboration topic earlier, mm-hmm. communication as a leader is going to be key to getting your workforce to do, to enable 
what you want to enable. The reason this is a challenge is the whole debate right now, am I better off working in the office? Am I better off working hybrid? Am I better off working remotely? And there's zero consistency across organizations. And the way that you manage people in those three environments is different. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. If you and I see each other every day, we can catch up in the hallway for two minutes and get an update on something. We don't need to put 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour on the Zoom. Yet mm-hmm. everything in a remote and hybrid environment has become a, a 15, 30, and 60 minute Zoom call. Totally. So um, on top of that, we go back to the ESG initiatives. You've got all of these workforces. Again, your world is leading this charge. The tech space is leading this charge. You know, right. Facebook employees revolting. Google employees wanting to take, you know, wanting the executives to take a stance on, on a certain social initiative and all sure. that. Um, the ability to manage that as a leader, uh, I'm of the opinion that's going to become a key because, again, you have to enable your workforce. You have to enable them to want to do this for you. Yep. And the old school way of managing people in that environment is not going to work moving forward. Right, right. Well, two things, I mean, two really key items, and I hadn't even thought of that, which is the labor shortage associated with retiring baby boomers and the vacuum that that creates, right? Like, like I hadn't even thought of the pig of the python kind of thing, right? And that's that literally yeah. is the next five to eight years. That is going to be yeah. like, like literally just people falling off the workforce, um, yeah. falling out of the workforce, so to speak. Um, but then also you talk about, and again, another key megatrend here is finding that key Mm, ESG, circularity, something. So everyone can speak commonly, right? Around what their initiatives are. And I actually do fall back on my previous world of data centers and infrastructure. I've seen this story before. And there we created a metric called PUE or power utilization efficiency because there was a vacuum around. Basically it was the ESG value for data centers. Yep, makes sense. and, 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 And a very simple metric, it was just the total amount of power delivered to a data center over the amount of power being used by the servers, which the difference, the Delta being wasted energy, right. You know, in air conditioning and infrastructure. Well, I mean, I'm going to be radical. I'll throw it out there. I'll just plant the seed, but I think we need a circularity ratio. If if all companies measured how much they're buying that's from virgin materials versus circular materials, keep it that simple. Now all of a sudden everyone can report on that. And what it did in the world of data centers is by the minute that common miles per gallon was published, everyone started jumping onto that and wanted to be their marketing department. Like, oh my God, here's a metric finally. I can yep. show my story that I went from, you know, a, a, you know, 12, you know, which is where we are today, by the way, at 8% circular to yep. getting to the nirvana of one, right? And show that trail and circulate. So I think that's something that the world needs, but it, the reason we worked though is because you had an industry that saw the problem and also collaborated. Like that's that's yeah. the point that I wanted to drive home is that you can't do this as an individual company. I right. don't think, especially when you're talking about consistent standards. So yeah. you have to open up and collaborate with everyone. Otherwise yeah. you're gonna have a regulated, regulatory environment come in, which is what no one wants. Agreed. Right? Agreed. So yeah, yeah. I, and, I, and I think it's becoming, and it's also one of these things where I think circularity is again, one of these almost like supply chain is so obvious how big it is. Circularity is one of those things that's now becoming, I think, a lot of the noise over the last couple of years, the greenwashing, whatever you want to call it, it's kind of giving way to like, okay, let's just yeah. focus on whether it's stuff coming out of the ground or stuff in, that we can reuse. Yeah. Right. And, and you and I both know that that's, that's not easy. There's a lot no. of work involved in that. Yeah. I think, of, you know, when I was with AMR Research, I think back to the time when we were doing work with the uh, Department of Defense 
Yep. Everyone was, and this is the time when Walmart was trying to find the RFID standards. Oh, right. right get, of course. Get to get a, the hundred largest Walmart suppliers. And Walmart Drive is saying, if you want to do business with us, you got to, you know, we need to come together what the standards are. And to see them try to agree on what those standards would be, knowing there's business at risk. Right. You know, oh, that's impossible. There's, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of work involved in doing that. So yeah. does that mean uh, standards boards got to come in and, and make this a reality? Uh, because I don't think, you know, you'll have certain organizations that'll want to lead that charge, but there's always going to be naysayers in that group that's going to make it difficult. Right. So there's a huge opportunity there for sure. Yep. And to, to your point, to give credit where credit's due, POE was invented by a third party called the Green Grid. So it was an external yep. organization. Now, of course, there was a lot of debate and I was in the middle of all sure. of that. And there was everything you're, you're saying, right? Everyone was yelling at each other. But finally it came out and it just it ended up being, but regardless. So, so again, you know, kind of winding down here a little bit. So now you, and again, to put a finer point, you know, networking availability, obviously you're out here, but I mean, you're, you're completely open to, to collaborating with people, obviously via LinkedIn, you know, that's how we met, um, yep. you know, but it, you know, just, you know, parting thoughts, things that you're kind of thinking about or things that your firm's thinking about or things that you're recruiting for, you know, it sounded like you're in consumer space. And I think about some of the other things that that you're probably going to get pulled into. Like I was actually, I don't have time today. Like, you know, I, everyone needs supply chain across the spectrum of consumer to business to business to even venture capital, private equity. Like I can't tell you how yeah. many times I'm talking to people who are like, oh, come do venture capital, private equity. Because they're still trying to figure out how to invest in supply yeah. chain. So it's just like this, yeah. you know, where, I mean, there's so much opportunity, especially because you're at the pinnacle of kind of seeing the traffic of the people as they move around, right? I love it. I love it. I tell people I'm that, I'm that, I, that I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. You know, I, I like those commercials, right? I'm not that guy that sits there and says, I feel good enough because I hear enough about what's going on that I, right. you know, I'm dangerous enough to have these discussions, right? It feels great. I love it. You're on yep. the forefront. You're hearing about things that's six months, 12 months later, you're actually seeing the story. You're like, I knew about that a year ago. That's right. really cool. I, that's what I love about this business. It's really Got cool. It. Got it. That's awesome. Well, listen, I, I, again, 60 minutes comes and goes really quickly. I want to thank you again for being on the episode here. It was really a pleasure to chat with you today. Just awesome. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate the invite. You got it. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about this episode or topics on supply chain you'd like us to cover, you can reach us at supplychainnext at requis.com. And while you're at it, check out the Request platform at supplychain.request.com. Request allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud while collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at request.com.